0: Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate.
1: And so one of the things that got added, I think in this last version, is that when you make an incorrect answer, you get some feedback. It tells you why you were wrong. So, If you f- thought something was fake, the feedback to you is, this is what you missed. Right? So the idea is, we're not banging you over the head saying, dummy, this is what... But that's a little piece of information that hopefully people then
0: take forward. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media and the people who are trying to make it better. Joining me in studio today are Robert Hone and Maggie Farley. Welcome to the podcast. Hello Hi. to you. Robert is the acting director of the American University Game Lab Studio, and Maggie is an AU JOLT fellow. Okay, first, what is a JOLT fellow?
2: Ah, Well, JOLT is a, a more exciting sounding acronym for the name of the program, which is um, Journalism and Leadership Transformation. Okay. And yeah. so part of what it is, it's a... Simply, it's the intersection of technology and journalism. But more excitingly, it's the application of game design thinking to journalism.
0: Okay. And uh, you, you, Robert, you started in Jolt as well? Yes, I first came to AU as a professional fellow. I'd run an interactive
1: design company in the San Francisco area for about 20 years. And I used to teach there, and I missed teaching. So I came to AU sort of in search of getting back in the teaching role, and the fellowship was offered to me, and I came here.
0: Okay, and you're sort of stepping into the role that Lindsay Grace, who I guess is he's going to be away for a while from the program.
1: Yeah, so he's the founding director, and he's coming back in January. And uh, actually, it was kind of a a series of steps. Uh, One, I worked for, we actually, Maggie and I worked on the game, and I think that was the first sense of like, wow, this is a team that's kind of working out. So then they said, okay, and then I came up with a course to teach, and then they said, Well, what if you took over the game studio? So that happened. So it was like one thing after another.
0: More responsibility with more success. That's
1: that's
0: the hope. Yes, (laughs) you're falling upward. That's that's great. Um, So the reason you're in here, you you mentioned the game. Uh, You guys have developed a game. It's called. It's. Well, you say what it is because I'll mispronounce it.
2: Factitious.
0: Factitious. Okay, and it's to help people to recognize fake news. Right. Okay. So that seems like such a, I don't want to say it's an obvious, but it is an interesting idea. How did it come about?
2: As a fellow, we were talking about potential projects, and I had been working with a group called the News Literacy Project. And I thought it would just be fun to make a game to convey to students, I was originally thinking of, how to detect fake news. And at the time, fake news wasn't really a term we were thinking about how people would get confused between real news and advertising advertorials or real news and opinion or satire like the onion.
0: Remember when people cared that those were the things to worry about? <laughs>
2: yes. It all yeah. seems so much simpler than <laughs> So much <yes>. more innocent. <laughs>
0: yes. Oh no, I don't know if this ad where they're talking about a car is that they're trying to sell me something or if it's actual real reporting behind it. I just don't know. Right.
2: But, but, but there's yeah. always been fake news yeah. I and mean, there's always been propaganda There's always been crafty advertising. There's always been spin to try to get people to uh, view your alternative facts in a certain way to enhance your argument.
0: So so the world is sort of caught up with that idea of of creating a game for fake news, I guess.
1: Well, I think just to follow on. So Maggie, we actually was during a break, I think, in one of the meetings. And she's like, wouldn't it be cool if we have a game? And so I ran a game design company. I mean, so I started going, well, let's, how, how can we approach this? And I still have contacts with some of my former really expert programmers and artists. So we basically made a pitch and then built it over a summer. I think the total budget was like 10,000, which is really small for a game. And then went through and did a whole bunch of testing and really good positive response. That was a desktop version. And so this winter we recreated it in
0: a phone version. Okay. Sort of talk about the, the functionality of the game. How does, it, how does it play? What does it do?
2: The phone version, you swipe right for real news and left for fake news. It's um, a nod to Tinder, which is funny when you watch people play it because the older people just want to click on the button. The younger people, like the high school students, just want to click on the button. But anybody between sort of 20 and 35, they're swiping right, they're <laughs> swiping left, just like there's no tomorrow.
0: Okay, so and what happens is is that the uh, the player is, is given a news story with a headline and a photo and a, uh, and some information about it. They're supposed to read the story or at least you know scan it to get a sense of what it's about, and then sort of make it a determination if it's false or if it's if it's real. And you know, I played it, and uh, I think I got sixty percent, which isn't great, <laughs> which isn't terrible, but it's it's not great either. Is there a learning curve on it, you think? Do you think people get better as they play it?
2: I think for sure. And it was kind of a challenge in game design because one of the behaviors that we were trying to encourage while making it really fun is for people to sort of read it and seek out information about why it may or may not be true. But game players hate hints. They feel like it's cheating. And so we had, in the original game, we had a a button that said hint, but nobody would ever click on it. So in the mobile version, we named it Source, and more often, people will click on it. And it gives you a lot of information. We purposely presented the game divorced of context, the way it might come across your Facebook feed. So you can't judge whether it's from a reliable source or not. You sort of have to read it through on the game. But if you click Source, that tells you where it came from, which is the single most important bit of information in judging whether a... Um, News article is real or not?
0: Whether it comes from CNN or Fox News or The Onion or The New York Times or Infowars or Infowars, right? Which is a fake place, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's one of the ones in that in that forty percent that I got that I got incorrect. And actually, one of the things you sort of said there, then she alluded to, which is actually kind of, you know, um, it requires people to actually read it. And to understand and and also it's it's a learning game it's not that's actually one of the things that, that i hope we talk about in this that the whole idea of doing this sort of journalism is to teach people something mm-hmm. and, and what it really does is through the game mechanic it's training people to look for certain cues clues in stories you know what the source is if there are real names in it mm-hmm. so i think my reaction when I was playing it, I played it a couple of times and began to realize that part of the problem was, is in playing a game like that you feel you have to do it quickly, and when you do that, you more often than not you're it's a you know 50 50 shot as to whether you're right or wrong. But when you actually take the time to read the the content there and say, oh yeah, there's no there are no names in this story, they're just random quotes and and suppositions, so that must be a fake story. So requiring people to read is actually probably a good thing.
1: I think one of the things that was great with this is we got to do multiple versions of this. We did two rounds of paper prototyping. Then we did a desktop version. Then we did a phone version. And so one of the things that got added, I think, in this last version is that when you make an incorrect answer, you get some feedback that tells you why you were wrong. So if you thought something was fake, the feedback to you is this is what you missed, right? So the idea is we're not banging you over the head saying, dummy, this is what, but that's a little piece of information that hopefully people then take forward.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really a valuable thing for, you know, as we move forward and, and some of the strategies for sort of cracking fake news is is teaching literacy to people on in, in how they consume their media. And here's a here's a tool where you could give this to somebody and let them play with it for, you know, ten or fifteen minutes and then they begin to, you know, just to the the play of it, begin to see some of the the obvious Things that people are trying to push fake news and in, into the public, they'd be able to recognize it. Or at least we'd be smarter about consuming and sharing news. That's certainly the goal. Cool. And so th- how long did this take to sort of to us to get to this stage? Us, like I was involved. I think the first
1: paper prototype <laughs> was two years ago. Right, okay. but again, it, there was production up until October. Then it sat around for about a year, and then we picked it up. I think if we were to do all the stages together in ones, it was probably about a six-month project.
0: Okay, and for the sourcing of it, you know, obviously you have to have, uh, you know, news stories to to feed that. And I recognized some of the news stories, ones that had been shared out a lot, the man who was swallowed by a python, things like that. Right. That uh, you know, how did you sort of call this and then sort of verify, um, the 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 sourcing.
2: So it's my job to spend time on the internet and find the stories. And it's a little bit tricky. Uh, Sometimes you get fooled yourself. I mean, I spent a lot of time going to the original websites and then trying to track it back to the zero story, the, the very original story, because news is aggregated and amplified and sent around so quickly. I also found that some of the so-called reliable news sites were often fool themselves um, and would pick up a story that they'd later have to um, correct. Um, so it's kind of a game in itself, just finding <laughs> the stories that we can use.
0: Yeah, and, and that's funny because we've had a couple of people on the podcast who started out actually writing for the news section of The Onion and people don't realize there's actually (laughs) some real news in The Onion. But every time you see that headline, it's like, oh, well, this must be fake. No, no, no. This this music review of this concert was actually a real thing. Right. And there's also
2: (laughs) an advertising part of The Onion. They do product placement in their stories. Interesting. Wow. Um, And it's really clever. It's really well done.
0: Right. No, there's, um, you know, I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember the the whole idea of the, the man in the gray flannel suit, the the idea of, uh, of uh, not Wall Street, that um, <laughs> there's Madison Avenue in New York with this idea that, you know, here are these people who are spending all of their energy and their time and their brain power in coming up with ways to sell things to people and sometimes deceiving them with, with the content that they do. And, you know, here we are in a, in a media environment where a lot of that same sort of energy and thinking is going into, you know, putting out political agendas and, and, and sort of peddling sort of false narratives about all different types of things. And, you know, the average reader is seeing themselves as not only a dupe, but a dupe who is also helping to disseminate this stuff by, mm-hmm. by, by sharing it uh, on social media. Right. right. There
2: was one story that I caught wind of and I thought, oh, this is so ridiculous. It'll be great for the game. And it was a story about how Hillary Clinton was in charge of a a child sex trafficking ring that was based in the basement of a local pizza joint. It's like, this is just ridiculous. Okay, I'll put it on. I had a lot of trouble finding the origin of that story. And I got sucked deep down into the hole of what has become known as Pizzagate. So I didn't end up using it for the game because it was too complicated. But it became a huge controversy, and it became a great example of the power of fake news. If you don't remember the story, there is a a pizza place called Comet Ping Pong in Washington, D.C., and there was a story that really gained traction on Reddit and then sort of cycled around the conspiracy sites that was about the sex trafficking ring. And there's all sorts of, you know, hidden symbols in the menu. And, the and
0: abbreviations under- of what they mean. Right. And-, right. and
2: it was really elaborate and codified.
0: And culminating in a, in a man driving up from North Carolina with a gun to yeah, try yeah. to save some children from this because apparently the, there was so much corruption in the, the police that, that nobody was investigating this thing that would everybody on the web knew about. But, you know.
2: Exactly. And this yeah. guy burst into Comet Ping Pong with guns.
0: So yeah, no. That's afterwards.
2: A, he's like, I think I was misinformed. <laughs> you
0: think? <laughs> well, he certainly could have benefited from your game, and, and <laughs> yeah, at some I level, I think
2: you know. It, it, and it's you know,
0: I'm I'm a journalist. I I'm supposedly savvy in these things, but it, it is it, you know, when you start playing a game like this, it makes you sort of stop and think. Okay, I do skim a lot of news stories, and and I maybe I shouldn't share something that I that I haven't looked at fully, that I haven't figured out who it's from. The other thing about your game is it, it, it being just here's the story and you have to make that judgment, you don't have a lot of the extraneous clues like your crazy mm-hmm. Uncle Phil who is <laughs> who's right. espousing, you know, right. some some political agenda that every time you see something that he shares, you know where that is. That's coming from and that's not true.
2: Right. You need to see, send your crazy right. uncle Phil this game.
0: Yeah. Okay. But, well, but again,
1: that's where there's the button for source saying why don't you look a little deeper, and maybe you'll get an answer. Yeah. So, you know, what would be great to do? We don't have the resources to do it. But really take 100 people, right, and, and run them through it and see if they actually change how they perceive Facebook news, Yeah. right? Because that is is decontextualized.
0: Yeah. No, and I, and I think, you know, I I said it before, I think uh, the, the, the movement towards – having more web uh, internet literacy media literacy understanding how we produce the news how the news is di- distributed I, I see that sometimes with the Facebook feed for the the website that I work on that you know that people will share some of our posts and then people will leave these comments and it, it gets to a certain point where people are commenting on comments and sharing on shares and and it gets sort of out of maybe your core readership and then you have start people start, folding in and political agendas and and so suddenly your story which is about one thing is now the discussion is about something else and it becomes associated with something else so you know our news online is perceived in so many different ways and, and as soon as it becomes involved in the in the dialogue you can't you can't really control it you can only hope to you know provide nuance, I guess, in your response to these things. Let's talk, you know, Lindsay was in the, on the podcast a while back. You know, let's talk a little about what the News Lab does and, and sort of what its mission is. Before, I'd like to pick okay. up on a
1: thread you did earlier, which is talking about it used for education. So one of the things we developed from the beginning was this wasn't just a game. It's a game system. So there is a content database. There's an article editor that Maggie uses to upload her articles, upload the images, source information. Then there's a games editor where we can say, which stories do I want to include in this round of the game? Then there's a data reviewer where you can say, like when we were first doing it, we wanted to group them by easy, medium, and hard. Well, how do you know if a game's hard, if a story's hard? Well, people get it wrong. That's one indication. So we did a whole bunch of tuning of the game where we would change what was done in the, in the front end, because we have the article editor and the game editor look at the database and say, oh, right, that's working out. Those are easy. We've put them together well. That system is open source, and we're actually releasing a manual for it. So a teacher in a journalism class could basically do all of the work that Maggie did to set up their own examples and use
0: it in their classroom.
2: Or the, or the students can make their own examples.
0: Sure. Uh, so let's get back to the point about uh, the News Lab itself, uh, or not the News Lab, the, the Game Lab itself. What, what's its mission? So the mission for the American University Game
1: Lab and Studio, and we really have two separate parts. So the Game Lab is a little bit more of the academic program. So there's an MA um, and soon to be another degree program that I can't actually say out loud yet. And then the studio is designed to work with outside entities. So, for example, we worked on the JOLT project. We also did a game for children with severe anxiety with National Institute of Mental Health, and that's undergoing a clinical trial right now. Oh, wow. And we've worked with the World Bank. We do a project with ETS. So it's really sort of balancing the fact that we have all this expertise in the faculty, and we have talented students. And then basically the students and faculty work together on these outside projects. Cool. So two of our students, on their resume, they say, I helped make a game that is undergoing a clinical trial. Cool. That kind of works if you're, you know, if you're trying to get out in the market and say, did I do anything that mattered? You may be helping a whole bunch of kids with severe anxiety.
0: So why is this in a a journalism program or communications program? So the the game lab is really
1: a, a collaboration between communication and the College of Arts and Sciences, computer science department. So it's really a combination of sort of the design and the messaging and communicating that comes from communication, along with sort of the technical abilities to actually make an interactive program. Again, from my background, I was a documentary filmmaker and now doing games. There is a narrative element to games. It's maybe not as straightforward. It's certainly more interactive and more on. It's not as linear as it would be in other forms, but there still is a message. What are you trying to communicate to people? What are you hoping for them to discover? Right. So rather than telling them it, give them a chance to discover stuff because then they feel like they're an agent in their own discovery. And that leads them to tend to be more engaged.
0: Yeah and that that was something that that Lindsay and I talked about in that you know your yeah how this helps to fulfill a journalism approach from a storytelling approach where you you want to not only just report on something that but give somebody the experience of it to to sort of reinforce whatever the lessons are so putting them in that place and there's a lot of talk about you know immersive journalism and, and vr and whatnot but this is something that's just taking the game mechanic in it itself and using that as a tool to teach people about something to relate some story Right. And, and just as simple as this game that we we were just talking about. Right. And same. it can be
2: very complicated or it can be very simple. And one thing that we found doing the Jolt program is that you can use technology to get people involved and make the story more interactive and more experiential. And so it can be as complicated as virtual reality where you have to put on Gear. goggles. Or it can be as simple as as this handheld game. And we did one with WAMU called Commuter Challenge. And it was about how different commuters deal with the safe track shutdown. And so I went out and interviewed 40 people on their commute and road trains all over the place. And found out what people's different challenges were. And we modeled our character. who's a composite character um, on a guy who lived in Anacostia. And worked an hourly job at a restaurant and he didn't have the flexibility to telecommute or to take an Uber. And so we built this all into a narrative game using a very simple, free platform called Twine. So it's a narrative game. So you do the story, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. You go through the story, should I pay for an Uber or take my chances and maybe get fired? (laughs) And so you just make these choices all along the way. And since you're living the experience of this character, you're having to actually have their experience.
0: Okay. And it's interesting that some of the things you said in that, one of which is that you took trains all over to the different place and you sort of came up with a character to be sort of the... Um, avatar of whatever that, that particular that particular game is. So it actually, you, you, there's a, a degree of reporting that's involved in it, that you actually have to go out and get your information to sort of support whatever the narrative is that you're going to do. It, are there ty- types of uh, stories that work better in this type of storytelling?
2: Yes, we found that games are actually better to approach some kinds of stories, especially um Experiential stories where you want to simulate the experience, like be a Syrian refugee for a day. Make the choice. Do you join the government army or do you become a rebel? Um, Your house is bombed. Do you flee or do you stay? So there's the experiential stories. There are stories that can help you approach complex systems like global warming or a traffic pattern where you can actually get in the story and tweak the different elements of it as a game player. And if you change one thing, it will affect something else. And so if you're actually in the story, you can understand the choices and the decisions and all the elements behind the story much better than if you just read it in a newspaper.
0: Yeah, what I like about what you're describing is that, you know, sometimes when we go out and we, we report a story, it's like, okay, here are the facts of the moment. You know, here are the people I, I interviewed. This is kind of their story. But to try to take it to the next level, to get people actually involved in it and sort of make those choices, you know, there's a lot a degree of imagination that's involved in it and construction in it that isn't always part of a, a, you know, a standard news story. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's, it, it can be a difficult thing. But if, if you have that type of brain that, that can conceptualize those types of stories and tell those types of stories, I, I would imagine it's, it's an incredibly war- rewarding type of storytelling.
2: Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there are a lot of, news outlets that are experimenting with this and doing it really well. Washington Post is doing it really well. New York Times is doing it especially well. And they not only make games, but they make a lot of interactives, or what Lindsay likes to call toys, where you can play with elements. You're not necessarily trying to win something. You're just playing with it. And this is, you could see this during the election when you could play with what happens if that state went blue and that state went red and manipulate the information And this has become really important right now when people are more and more skeptical of so-called mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And we found through our project that if people can build it, they will trust it. So you give them the data and you let them play with it. And then they can come to their own conclusion.
0: Yeah. And what I like about that is you're giving them the tools and the ability to sort of change the scenario and see the effects that one choice makes over to the other. They, they get the experience of, okay, well, now I understand why, why this person, that this was the experience that he had. If I were in that same position, you know, I maybe would make those same choices and those same things would happen to me, so I better understand his plight. But then I also understand the larger context of elements that are kind of weighing on him. You know, like the, for example, the the game that you mentioned about the commute. That oh, you know, well, why doesn't he get into an Uber? Why doesn't he get into a taxi? Well, oh, I don't have that money. So if I, again, if I were in that position, it puts people in the, in the, in the story. It allows them to experience, and make some of those same choices. And then also, I, you know, I think it seems a much more enriching experience by doing a story like that in gaming as opposed to just reading it. Well, one of the
1: things you can do is if you have an understanding of the relationships in a situation which very often people don't see, right? They don't recognize that this thing affects that thing. right? And so underlying what computers, coding can do is you build a a little mini simulation of that system. And so what people are discovering is these hidden relationships. And suddenly they're not just have information, they information of how things work. They're revealing sort of the machinery behind some of the things that otherwise goes hidden.
0: Yeah, and you see that a lot with interactives. I mean, like you mentioned, uh, well, like in, in an election where, you know, what what happens if voters of a certain, you know, socioeconomic class don't show up? What, you know, how does that affect mm-hmm. the polls? And you can see mm-hmm. how, well, oh, more and more of these people are represented or just being able to manipulate the different factors can change things so so much. And as Maggie said, they're generating the information. They have the question,
1: they explore it, and they get an answer, as opposed to we've decided this is the angle that we're going to explain. We're only going to explain one relationship. What we give them is the tools to begin to explore.
0: Oh, okay. That is true. I didn't even think of it that way, that, that in actuality, because sometimes, like with games, games are linear. Like, you, to get to from point A to point B, you have to follow a particular track. But in a situation where you're, you're giving everybody all the choices... They can make those choices and they can decide not to do something and, and basically go wherever they want to go. I mean, it's not all the choices. I mean, we, no. from a design perspective, <laughs> but
1: you would might have several choices and really clever games say, here are different outcome states. We're going to allow people to go down. So there may be four different ways of finishing or right. four different ways of winning, right? right? And you can choose. You Decide that, and then you see the impact of your decisions.
0: Yeah, and it was, it, I wasn't necessarily even thinking of it in terms of winning, but I guess that as it, it being a game, there are some people that they they want to be able to get, they want to be able to win, whether it's completion of the game, yeah. or like I got to work on time, or I have got the most pieces of pizza, or whatever. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> well, that's a little bit of the toy versus game. So, and I use the same
1: vernacular, which is SimCity is not really a game; it's a toy because you can decide what your city looks like. There's no win state for SimCity right? So if it's a game, usually you have a win or a loss date. Toy means that you're just exploring.
0: Cool. Are we just building toys? Is that what you're saying?
1: Uh, in terms of what we did here, that's a score. And so that's a game. Okay. Other cases, it can be toys. Other cases, it can be instructional design.
2: And so what came out of this collaboration in the last couple of years is um, an idea that we've coined as engagement design. And it's, Using the elements that make games so engaging, for example, and applying them to other non-game contexts. So to journalism or to advocacy or community organizing.
0: In those last two that you mentioned, uh, community organizing, how does that, an advocacy, how how would a game in that environment work?
2: Three of the fellows did a a game based around water consumption. And it could be a a news game or it could be an advocacy game. But they designed it so you would actually play it on a food truck. So they'd be in the food truck and use the magnetic side to place magnetic cards on. They didn't actually have the food truck, although they did get their food handler's license in case (laughs) it all worked out. They played it in a museum. And so our wonderfully talented illustrator and designer named Joyce Rice designed the game and the cards. And Sharice Datu and Kelly Dunlap designed the whole game. And...
0: I think I remember hearing about this, yeah.
2: And so it's a game where someone has to choose a meal based on what they think is the lowest water content or the lowest amount of water used to produce the food. And it's sort of a card trading game. And so you're trying to get rid of your beef, which takes 800 gallons per pound of beef for tofu or something. And... They found that people who were not at all interested in water consumption facts were interested in playing the game. And Mm. by playing the game, they learned a lot. You know, people were astonished. I didn't know it took 800 (laughs) gallons of water to make a roast beef sandwich. And also, it drew people together in a context when they probably wouldn't interact otherwise.
0: Yeah, and I could see from an advocacy standpoint, if you want to change somebody's mind about something that if you put them into a situation where if you make the wrong decisions you know there are going to be these adverse outcomes you know there will nobody's going to win everybody's going to lose if you then say well if we need to do x to conserve water that if you choose to do that and, and maybe that's something you wouldn't have done when you before you came into this game then you begin to change your attitude toward Okay, maybe maybe I should turn off my tap when I'm when I'm washing my Mm -hmm. hands or, Mm -hmm. or whatever, just to conserve a little water so that, you know, changing behavior through through this type of storytelling is kind of an interesting idea.
2: Right. And in that case, they framed it as a journalism game because they were just giving the information. But it could easily have become an advocacy game because they could have given what are the next steps? What can I do?
0: That's a good way to do it because a lot of times when people are approached with something as something in advocacy, they sort of, you know, their walls go up. So, no, I, don't, I don't want to be trying to convince to something, but if you present it to them in a way that it's a game and something they're going to enjoy and something they're going to learn from, I think learning is so much a, a part of what you guys have been talking about and the impact of it just from a storytelling standpoint. And then at the end, you know, changing the person's perception on, on it. And we don't always get to do that with the story. You know, I, we hope to do that. Sometimes our stories are just reporting, but, you know, whether that person takes that and, and it changes their attitude towards something, I think there's more op- opportunity for something like that through this type of storytelling. With the health games that we design, one of the
1: t- things you're trying to do is trying to maximize the of time that the person's actually trying to make a change, mm-hmm. right? So if you think of it, nobody gets in shape by going to a gym once. Right. You're only gonna get in shape if you do it a bunch of times. So the amount of time we can keep you engaged in the content that we want you to explore the more possible impact we can have. And so game design approaches, there are a lot of different things we've developed of ways of he- pe- keeping people engaged. And what they're engaged with is the thing that could benefit them.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine there would be situations where, you know, if, if it's some sort of repetitive activity that could become very boring, then you, you're going to have to set up rewards at some point to pull them forward. Otherwise, you're gonna walk away from it and they're not gonna experience it.
1: And we get all into the psychology of that, whether it's intrinsic motivation or extrinsic motivation, whether you're doing some extrinsic to start and you taper off so you build intrinsic, that's all part of what we're doing with with game design.
0: Let's go back to what you were talking about at the very beginning about what you're able to learn as you're developing a game, the feedback that you get and kind of how you adjust a game. You know, you talked about the data that you get, like these online games, You know, what type of data are you able to sort of glean from it? So there are a couple uh, different ways of doing it. So the online stuff, there's actually a lot more tracking
1: than people are aware of, right? (laughs) Arts is being done in the purpose of tuning the game so it's appropriately difficult. Chip Hawkins, who found electronic arts, has a great analogy. So a good computer game is like winning a tennis match 7-6, 6-7, 7-6. And as you get stronger, the game gets better. So as game designers, we want to find something that's just right for you now and what is still going to be challenging for you next week when you're smarter. Mm-hmm. And so our tuning that we were doing with our system is in that goal. But in terms of online gaming, there's a, a recent 60 Minutes called Brain Hacking. I, I suggest you look up. It's amazing the level of data and behavior modeling being done in online communication, not only games.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine... You know, if you've got a game like the one where, where we were talking about, uh, the fact-checking game, I mean, you, you don't suddenly, as you get all this information, you just suddenly turn the game up and make it that much more ha- much harder because there, there is a degree of entrance into it.
1: Oh, yeah. The other thing that Chip Hawkins said was they made the first basketball game. They made it so it didn't matter where you took the first shot. It could be at the back of the court, <laughs> and they forced the ball to go into the net.
0: Deliberately bounced off of somebody's head. Whatever it
1: mattered, because the goal was, I can do this, right? So every interface is like this new thing you're not sure what to do with, right? So anything you
0: can do is to boost the confidence. So always the first. This is the heroin matrix. It's like no, 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 no. no, no, no. This this
1: is is like first taste is free. Well, put it this way. If you want to get somebody to get something to do, do you yell at them first or no. you talk to them nicely? No, you give give them give them the carrot. Yeah, yes. I, 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 okay. So it's just, that's just the first one. But okay. the idea of building a difficulty staircase is what we call it with health game design. Is you want people to continue to be challenged, right? Once you've gotten to this level, what else do you got for me? Because that's the fun. Because I want to be I want to be challenged. People don't want to. Back to the tennis analogy, you don't want to thump somebody six love six love. Right. And certainly, is zero six zero six is pretty sad. So there's a there's a science to fun,
0: or at least reward.
1: Oh, there's a science to keeping people engaged through game design.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So you get this information, you take it, and you look at the game. You tweak it a little bit. Do you ever get to a point where you, you know, like with these online games that you, is it constantly updating, or do you sort of reach a plateau that it? This is where we think the game is gonna live. Depends what your funding is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like
1: everything in the world. I see. So, so you know, if you have something and people are gonna allow you to continue
0: to do it, well, sure, keep building more levels. If you've got Angry Birds and you want to just do it for the rest of eternity, right. you just keep right. pumping money. Right, into
2: it. and there's right. also a feeling that games are never finished because you're good constantly games. good games are never finished because you're right. constantly iterating. Right, but also there's an industry saying it never you're never finished. You just ship.
0: Right. <laughs> yep. we'll, get, we'll put that in the next box we'll put that in the next version
1: well um, that's in fact as a project manager one of my favorite sayings towards the end is a great idea for version two <laughs> oh,
2: yeah we hear that a lot from Bob <laughs> yeah,
1: so, <laughs> so, well because we, actually there's a Steve Jobs story about shipping so the Macintosh is late it's 1983 he gets all the engineers in the room he's in the front of the board his back to them and he's writing on the board feverishly and he comes he steps away he says real artists ship <laughs> so, at the end of the day, you have to ship it to get some some response, and then
0: there's version two. Yes, that's and what that's what open code is for. You know,
2: you were talking about. You asked, what kind of data are you collecting? Okay, and we are the benign.
0: You think? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, no, we know we are
1: benign because we'll. we are
2: consciously data. benign. Yes, but you know there are a lot of news sites out there and entertainment sites where you take a quiz. Like, what kind of Olympic athlete are you, would you be?
0: There's a reason there's so many of those games on Facebook and in and social right. media.
2: And so you put in all sorts of information. You put in how much you weigh and how tall you are and what you're good at and what you like to do. And they come up with a say, you would be a great pole vaulter. And your body would is analogous to this famous pole vaulter in the Olympics. But in the meantime, they've got all of your information. Right. And Give us your email. We'll tell you what your answer is. Yeah. And so... The people collecting information, even though the quizzes are fun, the intention is not always benign. I'm sure your pole vaulter physique is being sold across the Internet. Uh, the, the late David Carr
1: had a great line. The product is free. The product is you.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, no, it is. <laughs> At
1: the end I, 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 like Gmail, we gave every, everybody with a Gmail account gave Google permission to read our emails. Yeah. We assume they
0: don't, but they can and they do. That's that's the way the internet works, kids. Yeah. So you. Um, <laughs> so what's uh well first of all, where can people find uh Factitious? It is factitiousgame.com. There okay. There we go. And this is this link will be with the uh the story on the website. So what's next with this? Are you are you still gonna be uh, continuing it? Is there funding coming in to take it to the next way? Or you did mention that the, that this is gonna go out there so people can use it in their classes, et cetera.
1: Well, I have lots of wacky ideas. I mean, like, I want to do a version where we create, deliberately create examples that are, that clearly have the tropes that people use to try and obscure the source. And so that way, because we're creating it, we'll be able to sort of reveal it. That would be actual in a classroom. I think there's another opportunity down the road where this could be a Facebook game where people would get some of their news through this game.
0: Interesting. Right. Because some people,
1: get their news from Facebook, right? I, I go to a bunch of different sites, but a lot of people, Facebook curates their news. So why not do it through a game? Half the stories will be news, half of them you'll feel better because you happen to track them.
0: As long as they understand that and that they don't take all 100% of them to be exactly they're, they're, they must be obvious, they must be true. I saw it on Facebook, it has to be true.
2: Facebook has added a flag now because they've gotten in such trouble for being the greatest purveyor of fake news. Right. Uh, they're not doing it, but they're the platform. During the election, there was more fake news shared yes. on Facebook than real news.
0: Before the thought formulates of what I was saying, yes, that's a bad thing. But part of that was is that people were so motivated to whatever their particular cause was that they were happy to share anything that 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 matched their beliefs. Exactly. Whether it was real or not.
2: And actually, that's one of the little news tips that pops up as feedback if you get a story wrong, which is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If it makes you feel really angry or really smug, (laughs) check it out before you pass it on. It's pressing your buttons. Uh, But now now Facebook has a flag that you can click. Mm -hmm. It's very well hidden. It's just a little tiny um, half triangle, a little carrot-shaped Thing at the top right-hand corner, and you can open up that drop-down menu and say, "I think this story is fake," or "I don't think this story belongs here," mm-hmm. and you can report it. And then they'll send it to a group of fact checkers. If they
0: they deem it so, if
2: they deem it fake news, then you'll get a banner on that story every time it appears yeah. on Facebook.
0: Good. Um, back to the Facebook game
1: part. Um, we would be curating the content. Oh, okay so it's it's not like anybody's going to use the game to do that. We would be curating and saying what's fake and what's not fake.
0: Okay. All right. Well, uh, Robert and Maggie, thank you for coming in. This has been great. Um, right. I, I think this is a fascinating uh, way to tell stories, and a lot of, I mean, why not take advantage of this, which is already out there in many ways uh, in the Internet, and people are enjoying this stuff. Why not use it for good? <laughs> why not for a change? Thanks for coming in next time on it's all journalism i find people are very eager to tell their stories it doesn't take that much to if you have the time to allay their fears that you have some sort of agenda if you can demonstrate that you are genuinely interested in hearing their story and that you'll treat them fairly most people at that point are pretty eager to talk to you be sure to join us next week for a special episode Scott Massioni, the defense reporter here at Federal News Radio, shares a recent interview he had with Mark Bowden, author of Black Hawk Down. Scott talks to Bowden about his journalistic approach to writing and research. He also discusses his latest book, Hawaii, 1968, a turning point of the American war in Vietnam. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more, and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more.
2: The Capital
1: Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, Podcast podcast1.com, or at wtop.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia. Could render a huge arm to this country.
0: North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS.
1: D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see
0: an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA The
1: Target USA podcast find it on iTunes the podcast one app podcast1.com or at wtop.com search podcast dc